Welcome back to the Redneck Tech Podcast. This is going to be episode number 50, and this one's going to be with my good buddy Jacob Satterfield. Jacob Satterfield used to film for Savage Outdoors, used to be a host on the show, used to film for the show. Then he left there and he's went to work for a really big production company out of Charleston, South Carolina, and he's got to do some really cool stuff with wildfires. He's got to be a stringer out in L.A. Um, he's done a, a bunch of really cool things, so he's got a really cool perspective, not only on the hunting world, and doing that whole job, but he's also got a really cool perspective on the really big production, West Coast type filming, and I kind of wanted to get his perspective on how some of those things mesh together, you know, what he learned, and all that good stuff. So, here is Jacob Satterfield. Right here, right here, right here. Yeah, you want him? Yeah. So what's up, Jacob? How are you, dude? Doing well. How about yourself, Caleb? Oh, man. I can't complain. Like I was telling you before we get started, I'm kind of stuck in the editing rut trying to get my my brain wrapped around some of the stuff I've got to get done before trips come back up. I've got another trip to Kansas and all that good stuff and uh, just trying to get trying to get finished with stuff I've been putting off. How, how about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well, man. It's been um, a wild few days for me this past two months have been crazy busy um in my world of things october is always the busiest november stays busy but we've been trying to sit down it seems like for weeks now and get the time and you and i are both just hitting opposite schedules and i know what you mean about that tedious office stuff i'm sitting today organizing gear much rather be doing something else but um i've put it off for a few days as well so just doing that today and hanging out with the dog and relaxed and was in uh, Vegas past few days and it's good to be back home. Yeah. Well, sweet. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me, uh, I, I mean, I know, but the listeners probably don't know much about you. Yeah, man. Um, my name's Jacob Satterfield. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Caleb and I met very ironically and in a funny way years and years ago, my parents grew up um in Dahlonega Georgia there where Caleb lives yeah and um we there's a little hunting store there in Dahlonega Tritt Sporting Goods has all sorts of anything you need up there and some great guys and Caleb and I had met on Facebook and had talked and at the time I posted a picture at a restaurant in Dahlonega and he's like man I'm in the background of your picture we need to meet up and uh hang out and just swap some hunting stories because at the time, I was uh, with my dad. He and I were doing a show, uh, Southern Outdoor Experience at the time. And I, I can't remember if that was back when we were still on Pursuit. We That show was kind of all over the place. And um, it, it morphed into Savage Outdoors over time. And as I grew up, and again, this was, you know, I was young at that point. That was yeah, how old late were you middle school. Yeah, how old were you then? I, I mean... I want to say I was 13 or 14 at this time. I yeah, mean, I was, or, probably, or no, I was probably 17 or 18, maybe. Yeah, and we, we just had, you know, little conversations talking about film and hunts and kind of where my dad and I got started into the uh, outdoor TV world. It uh, was very, you know, I'll touch on that story briefly. It was interesting. We had a friend with um, 
a nephew who had a hunting lodge down in South Carolina. It was only two hours from home. I could go down there and hog hunt before school started, and um, we decided we'd go down there, and my dad always filmed these. It, every Everything we did as a family, vacations, things like that. So we, you know, we bring our home video camera, shoot some of our hunt to show our mom, like we see the guys with the camo cameras and tree stands doing back then, and um, you know, the, all the guys from Monster Bucks, all our, all my heroes at the time. So we film our hunt, and the guys down there they liked it so much they wanted to put it on a hunting lodges DVD. And as things moved on, we started Southern Outdoor Experience, or started with Southern Outdoor Experience, and morphed into the relationship my dad and Mike Stroff have. And um, when Savage Outdoors started, I was, you know, a little bit older at that point. I was in kind of in high school, getting towards the end of it, and was really enjoying working more behind the camera when I could. And when I graduated high school, took a semester and uh, stayed on the road the whole time, filming and hunting and all over, any chance I got, and uh, went back to school, found out that was not where I needed to be or where I wanted to be, and got back into it full-time at that point, um, filming for the show, traveling full-time, and kind of built my own gear package, and this was um, right around the time the Sony FS7 was coming out, and built a gear package around that, and um, just really got going into it from there, kind of dove head first, feet into the fire, jumped into it without fully well knowing what I was doing at that point. Well, no, I don't think anybody, when they first get into this, knows what they're doing. I thought I did, but I was clueless. No, and uh, just because you think you know what you're doing, filming outdoor stuff is different than anything else out there. And film, I mean, you can't compare one type of filming to another, and there's no classroom education or any education for that matter that that's going to teach you like doing it. Yeah, no and, doubt. Um, yeah, I'm sure you felt the same way. You learn something new or a new way to do do things almost every time you go out there. Well, that's why and I love that's why I love filming with other people that I might not have ever filmed for before, or filmed with before. Like you know, especially if I get to do shoots with other producers that I haven't got to work with, seeing how they set up set up their gear, seeing how they pack things, seeing how they travel, seeing how they, you know, formulate a certain scene, seeing how they produce. I just I enjoy that because. I know how I do it, but I like to see how other people do it, too. Yeah, man. And that's one of the things I've learned and learned learned the most from in hunting was being around guys who had been doing it for years and years and years. Um, and even if they're not, even if you're with somebody and, you, you know, they're newer than you, they might have a new way of packing things and doing things like you were saying that... You always learn something. You always pull something away, and that's kind of what I hoped for when I went into it that first year, which just dive in head first. And any chance I was in camp with another crew filming another show, because we do overlap a lot, even mm-hmm. if it's not for the same show. Um, a lot of these, when you're doing these hunts, you kind of circle around each other and try and help each other out and make it the best you can and end up in the same camp a lot of times with people. Yeah, and I've been in some really good camps, and I've been in some really bad camps. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, so you you started out with Savage, you know, there in high school, and you know, when you decided not to go to college, you started filming full time for them. What's what do you feel like's the that when you first got started? What's something that you learned early on that 
helped you or something you wish you'd learned that would have that hurt you in the very beginning when you're first getting started? I think one of the biggest things is being organized um, and finding your organizational pattern that keeps you ready. And um, I've heard a lot of people say this, you know, piss poor planning equals piss poor for performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to formulate a plan on it, not, it doesn't have to be every sit, but at least go into it before the hunt knowing, hey, in my head, this is what my plan is. This is what I need to do. And this is what I, you know, need to have with me and being prepared that's one of the biggest things I, I learned is just how to be prepared, what to have in your pack to um, be prepared for any situation, extra batteries, what's worth taking, what's not worth taking. Yeah, that's and a big one, what's not worth taking. Yes, you, you could definitely look like a uh, Mount Everest Sherpa out there if you're not careful carrying up, you know, way too much stuff, wearing yourself out, and not to mention wearing your gear out, taking stuff out that you don't need is extra wear and tear on your gear at the end of the day is going to cost you money some point down the road and slow you down when it breaks. Yeah. Well, another thing, not only being organized, kind of in your head and in your process, but another important thing, for which I'm sure you meant this as well, but which I take as seriously as being prepared when I'm in the field, that's having my gear organized and having my, essentially my production life organized to where I've got my schedules correct. I've got my stuff in Pelican cases nice, clean, and organized. I know where all my stuff is. I don't have to look for anything. That's important, too, because, I mean, you know as well as I do, when you get on these trips, it's go, 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 go. And if they're waiting on you, it's okay to wait on your hunter, but it's never okay to wait on the producer. No, and, I, I, you know, you couldn't have said it better, is it's in these situations, especially you know, making outdoor TV the way it is today and just the nature of it. You're filming wildlife. You're filming things you can't tell to hang on. You're out there in conditions where 90% of your shots you cannot reshoot. Mm -hmm. And being prepared for that, having your stuff where you know, hey, if, you know, this POV camera goes down, I know where my backup equipment is. If you know, I need to grab this lens. I know where it is. So when you hit the ground running, you're ready to go no matter what. Yeah, but and to touch on another point too is, you know, like you said, 90% of the shots you can't, you can't recreate or you can't shoot over. And that's, and I've talked about this before, that's how important it is in knowing your gear. Like knowing exactly what your gear is capable of and like how to run it, where the buttons are, where the rings are, where all those things are. That way when an animal comes in, you are prepared. You know what to do. And there's no, okay, where's my, you know, how do I adjust the shutter on this camera? You know, it's too bright. It's too dark. How do I fix that, you know, in a hurry? Yeah. N- knowing that those aspects, I, I, I think, are one of the biggest importance, important things you can learn is just knowing your gear. I mean, we have, you know, we always say these schedules are crazy, but when you have downtime, it's real downtime. Mm-hmm. And during that downtime, instead of sitting around and, you know, watch, catching up on Netflix or whatever it is, if you don't know your gear where you couldn't make adjustments to it or at least put it together in complete darkness, do it. Practice. And that's one of the things that helped me. I, when, I got, when I get any new piece of gear, I'll sit there, you know, dedicate a day just 
spending learning it and then take a few days off and go back to it again and put myself in mock situations where, okay, this went down if I need to replace it, fix it, or change a setting, how am I going to do it? So Well, that gives if, you confidence, too. It gives you confidence when you know those things. Oh, f- for sure. You get confidence. You get the ability to know, hey, if I run, there's not a situation I'm going to run into where I'm going to be scrambling because I know how to fix all these situations when I get into them. Yep. What is, um, so what's your favorite thing to hunt or what's your th- favorite thing to hunt slash film, I guess? It's hard to beat the old whitetails. Um, you know, I personally, I love duck hunting, but you bring a camera out oh, and God. you Don't try and film on, a duck hunt. Don't get me started on duck hunting filming. It, it It's the worst. It takes one of the most enjoyable ways to hunt <laughs> and spend time with your friends and makes it oh, one of gosh. the worst, worst feelings in the world. Could not agree more. <laughs> um, but it's hard to beat. I mean, you were just, we were actually together a few weeks ago down in Texas and Mm -hmm. it's hard to beat December whitetail hunting in Texas because the number of deer rutting and the activity is, you know, you're not seeing the bucks like you do in the Midwest or, you know, the freaks you might see, but you're seeing the activity like you've never seen it before. Yeah. It's like quantity over quality type thing. Yep. Which, I don't know. I mean, Mike killed a really big deer when we were down there, so I don't know if you can even argue the quality aspect of it anymore. No. I mean, the past few years, they've had enough rain where the the natural brush and the pro- protein down there is just so abundant. These deer are getting huge, and that buck he shot, I know it's the largest buck I've been in camp with him when he's taken. Yeah, that's the largest, that's the largest buck I've ever been in camp with. Well, not only that, it, yeah, it makes the bucks bigger, but it also makes the hunting a heck of a lot harder when there's that much foliage and that much stuff for them to eat because they don't come to the, the yellow acorns near near as easily when there's that much to eat. Oh, for sure. When it's that much food for them and there's that much cover, it makes it, it made our hunt much harder than it should have been. I mean, it's early season down there typically there's not much for them to eat they're coming to the food sources that you're hunting and that's the primary source of you know how you hunt down there in texas and it makes it hard i mm-hmm. mean it, it the brush is so thick even if you wanted to spot and stalk i don't know if you could do it especially the area of south texas we're in it's so flat there's not much terrain no elevation points to get to advantage point it makes it hard, and it, it, you know, it makes the possibility of not getting one very real, and mm-hmm. that brings a new challenge to, you know, our jobs. At least shooting something interesting that, if it doesn't make the final cut, it could be a part of a story later in the season. Yeah, for sure. So when you when you, um, which spoiler, I don't know if we talked about this, but you you don't film Savage anymore right now. You have went to work for a large production company based out of... Where are they based out of again? They are based out of Charleston, South Carolina. Based out of Charleston, South Carolina. So when you left Savage, you went to work for them. So tell me kind of what your you know your job is now. Yeah, so I work with a company that supplies um, staff, cameramen, and directors of photography to clients all over the country and you know we have international clients as well that do take us out of the country but 
my world is much more broadcast um, centric. So a lot of my in clients, it's it's features um, in sports events, things of that nature, live broadcast for the Weather Channel. I do get a lot of corporate um, shoots just due to my location. I live in Phoenix now. Um, being so close, so close to Las Vegas, I travel up there a lot for um, conventions, conferences, and company meetings, stuff like that. And it's those days are you know can be incredibly boring because you'll sit in the back of a conference room and film speakers all day. You'll mm-hmm. film interviews with executives on things you have you know that are just so foreign to you because they're talking in language that you know, for their internal videos, they understand. Um, and my decision to make that move the time I made it, um, it was, it goes back to what we were talking about, learning from the best. I was still at a point where I had a lot to learn. I knew I needed to find a way to learn, and I wasn't going to do that at a quick enough pace doing the, doing it the way I was doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, this the company I went to. Um, they have a great program where they all the new guys come in and shadow one of the senior guys for, um, you know, anywhere through nine to twelve months, depending on their experience level going into the job and um, the way they progress through the apprenticeship throughout time. Uh, I studied with a guy who lived outside of D.C. and that brought you know a lot of different um it it put a lot of different challenges in front of me i hadn't faced before uh dealing with you know we shot a lot in new york city and the different boroughs in new york and you know bringing a vehicle large enough just to have a camera kit and audio gear in it on these professional shoots you're bringing an suv and having to find parking that's a new challenge uh having to do this that or the other that was anything in in you put the location of you know a big city whether that's New York, LA, it, heck Chicago, any large city, and it just blows it up. So I went from having to deal with you know trees and no cell phone service and being bitterly cold to just millions of people, traffic, and it being bitterly cold. Um, the first shoot I had with the company, I went out running audio on a Weather Channel gig covering a major winter storm that dumped over two feet of snow on the northeast in New England. Um, So it was, I was in the elements still, but I was in a world, we were doing live broadcasts. So I never done that, never dreamed I would do that. And that was, you know, a big change. And it was definitely getting thrown at the fire. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of very big production, like a lot of sets, lighting, um, you know, some, are there some shoots that you actually have producers on set that are like not just camera guys that are actually, you know, running the shoot and like kind of trying to formulate characters and things like that? Yeah, um, a lo- majority of my shoots are these big production shoots like you're talking about. And even if they're not, even if they're as simple as sitting in a conference room filming interviews, 99% of the time, my in client has brought along a producer who is what, you know, at, at a minimum, they're asking interview questions and giving me previous examples of work they want this, my footage to match. And they're kind of directing me at that point. And that working 
in that aspect, that's that's a totally different world. Um, and it's a totally different feeling going into it because a lot of times these people have never picked up a camera in the, a day in their life and they're not camera guys. They don't understand what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And they see me come in with a cart, you know, that's got nine Pelican cases on it. And I, I'm taking, you know, an hour and a half to light their interview and they're, oh man, it should, you know, why, where's this time coming from? Why is it taking so long? Well, you want the look, you got to look. These interviews, you know, that's one of the things people overlook the most, I think. And to properly light and shoot one is, it, it takes time. And that's a majority of what I'm doing these days is big interviews. And then when it comes to the live broadcast, you're not only dealing with your talent on set, a producer on set, but you're also dealing with the broadcast control room, you know, and for me, that's usually thousands of miles away back in New York, Atlanta, sometimes even down in Florida for some of the uh, golf channel stuff. So you're dealing with multiple people at the end of the day that you're quote unquote answering to or shooting for. And, it's a different world. It's different types of challenges you face dealing with multiple people at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So how do you enjoy the big production versus the small production hunting show? You know, what's the, what's the I guess, the takeaway? What's the good, the bad, and the ugly? <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, the takeaway is I do enjoy it. I, it's There's something to the process of it for me i'm a very process person my personality type you give me a challenge and it could be big or small from changing a tire to organizing a whole season of an unscripted reality show and to me i like to think of it as a process and any of these shoots whether they're you know a tiny small one interview or a couple live broadcast or it's a very intricate six camera two person interview where we have a full crew you know full 20 person crew all that processing comes down to just enjoyment for me i i, I truly enjoy going through all the aspects of that yeah. uh what i don't you know what i'm missing about the small production because i haven't in this world i haven't gotten to be around the outdoor stuff for a little while is um, the close knit part of the community. um, But also just being able to run things yourself when I'm on a shoot where it's just me, that's where, you know, I really find I work the best and I'm happiest with what I get. And I think that's the big difference between shooting these outdoor shows. Yes. You have a goal you have to accomplish and you have to make it fit to, fit the parameters of whatever show you're filming. But then again, it's up to you. The creative control is in your hands. And that's a little bit, you know, of the downfall of some of these big productions. I'm coming into a lot of them and a majority of it, it's, Hey, we have a look we want. You just need to mimic this. And heck, sometimes I even get a diagram that has, you know, we want this type of light five feet from the interview subject at, you know, a 45 degree angle we need this light here this light there your camera here this lens and it's just a scientific process and i feel you know more like a 
some of those days a monkey with a camera. Yeah, I was about to say, um, yeah, you know, you know, you're just kind of a warm body pushing a record button at that point. For sure. And, you know, you're going to have those shoots in any any world you go into, but in the big production world that, you know, you run into that a lot more because... Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Um, there's a lot of travel involved with these with these shoots that people are doing there, you know, it might be local to me, but they're coming in here for two days and shooting a five minute segment or portion of their show of, you know, their web series, whatever it may be. And you got to make all that match up. And a lot of times you're at the, you might disagree with creative choices, but you're at the mercy of, you know, the end client. Yeah. Well, you do get to film. You still do get to film some stuff that's very unpredictable, like uh, animals. You talk, talk told me about doing some stuff with the the wildfires out in California. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, those Weather Channel has been a big client for the company I work with now for many years, and that's you know afforded me the opportunity to see some of the craziest events in the past few years, uh, mainly wildfires being out West. You know, we don't get the big snowstorms and we don't get the hurricanes nearly as much as the East coast. And I can't say we never do because I did cover a hurricane in Arizona this year. Um, one hit the coast of Mexico and drove up through us. But in those situations, it's completely unpredictable. And it brings me back to filming, you know, outdoor tv because you're dealing with wildlife you're dealing with the elements you're dealing with the weather and a lot of the same challenges you face in a deer stand you're facing and you know these wildfire situations are you know covering a hurricane and the most recent wildfire you know that was that was one of the craziest natural disasters or events i've been a part of i've you know never seen stuff like that talk to me about the logistics of that like what does that call sound like like you're going to film the wildfire what does that entail Do they tell you where to go what to get or is it just go get as much cool stuff with this wildfire as you can yeah so it's um very interesting the way it works most of the time and especially when you're dealing with these big weather situations weather is unpredictable Mm -hmm. and the weather channel you know like anything on tv the biggest story, the craziest footage, the craziest visuals, that's what sells. Mm-hmm. So they're not making decisions to go on to these natural events until very last minute. You know, I'm sitting, this most recent wildfire I covered out in California, I was in Southern California for that, but I was at home here in Phoenix and it was five in the evening getting ready to make some dinner and hang out with my wife and I get a phone call, hey, Weather Channel's, you know, calling, checking your availability, be ready. And when I get that call, I know, hey, got to, you know, I'm locked at the house until I hear otherwise or locked where I can be on the road within an hour. And if I don't have a bag packed and don't have my gear ready, I need to start doing that right away because I could get a call, hey, we need you in L.A. Now we're going to be on air in nine hours. And it's a six hour drive for me so you know i got a call and it's hey we're going to be live tomorrow morning you need to get out there so i leave you know and this is seven in the evening at that point get to la find a hotel that's available sleep for a few hours get up and then it's a matter of following the 
local police and fire reports and local news reports on where things are burning, neighborhoods that have been burned down, where to go, where the fire is, to get that visual, to get that information to pass along to the viewer. And it's not just, you know, it can sound like, oh, we're just looking for entertainment value. No, we're looking to show you the truth of the matter of what happens when you don't evacuate or how dangerous these fires can be. Because, you know, at towards the end of our week there, we were at the bottom of a hill and what would most would consider a good campfire to kick around and share some stories with turned into burning a thousand acre hillside and threatening a neighborhood of five million plus dollar homes in less than 10 minutes. And the unpredictability about that is something people don't understand unless you've been in one before. Yeah. And most people won't be in them, so you have to be able to show them what that is to be in one. Oh, for sure. And that's where I find, you know, the most, um, I I, I don't know if it's, it's not pleasure, but most fulfilling part of that job in those shoots is being able to know, hey, I captured something millions of people and a majority of people are not going to be able to ever see, Mm -hmm. let alone know about. And if I wasn't there, how would I like to, you know, what would I like to see? What would, what about this would make me feel like I was there if I was watching it on the TV and approach it that way and shoot it that way? Which is the exact same way you should approach doing a hunting show too. You know, what's going to, if somebody's not here to actually witness this, how can I best portray this to where they feel like they're here? You know, and you say that, and that's what filming with my dad and I started because it was my mom wasn't out in the woods with us but we wanted to show her what we were doing together it was about father-son time and to be successful in that we wanted her to feel like she was there Mm -hmm. and it's one thing to tell a hunting story but it's another thing to show a hunting story that's the best version of it oh uh, for sure I mean you look at fishing in the glorious fishing tale you know fishing tv is awful that's a that's not where i was going i love it it can be fun to shoot but i can't watch bass shows it's like duck shows for me but um yeah exactly you know i won't knock it because a lot of people love it. It, it it is entertaining if it's your thing it's not my thing but the old fishing tale you can tell a hunting story nobody's gonna believe you but a camera doesn't lie yeah and it also does another element to those stories of your buddy got to go elk hunting and you've never been you want to sit down and hear him talk about it for hours but if i can show people what it's like to elk hunt in colorado i want to do that so that they feel like they're there Mm -hmm. that they you know feel like they were a part of the camp and that's the biggest thing and you know filming these weather events and wildfires in particular what can i show that you know on TV that my dad watching back home can understand what this this is like because he's never seen it. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, uh, you did another thing that you were telling me about. So there's a show on Netflix called Shot in the Dark, and it's about stringers out in California. So explain to me what stringers are and tell me about your stringing experience. Yeah, stringing is interesting. And I don't have, you know... Um, the full stringing experience like these guys do these guys are totally independent and they're just out there trying to grab stories and if you want if you remember years ago there's a jake gyllenhaal movie um nightcrawler 
where he basically sees a news guy filming a car accident, and then he's like, yeah, I'm going to go sell this. So Jake picks up a video camera, tries to go film some wild police chases, crimes, whatever he thinks might make the news, and starts selling it to stations. And the show Shot on the Dark follows real-life versions of Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, and I got to say, it's one of the best-produced shows on any entertainment platform right now. 100%. Holy crap, how well that show's done. Um, You feel like you're part of these guys. You know, reality TV, ultimately, you want to feel like you're part of somebody's life. Life or their experience, and you do. You feel like you're there in the car with them while they're, you know, listening to a police scanner and fire scanner, things like that. They hear of a big event going on. They haul butt to wherever it is and get footage and immediately start calling local news stations saying, hey, I've got footage of, you know, a house fire. I've got footage of a high-speed police chase. Uh, you know, do you guys want it? Here's here's my pa- here's the, you know, little three-minute highlight from it. Mm-hmm. And they send it in and the news stations buy it or not. Yeah, that's how they and make their money. Yes, and people make a living doing that, and a healthy living. Um, You have to be in big markets, and there's very few of them. You know, you have a few in Texas, Houston and Dallas, uh, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, New York. But it's um, a way to, for for those guys, they're hunting down stories, kind of like we do with the weather when we're done doing live broadcasts. We go out looking for stories, things like that, that we can put together in a five-minute segment for later in the evening. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for, you know, anything that's going to compel or anything that's going to bring viewers to the station. And those guys do an awesome job, and it's a great example of how they do it. And it's very accurate into what they experience, what the troubles they run into, and things of that nature. Yeah, I love seeing how they set their rigs up in the back of their cars too, to where they just grab and go. It's just you know, it's a super simple package. You know, one big light on top normally, and I think most of them are running three hundred Ks. You know that you know just to kind of ENG style rocker zoom type cameras where they can kind of run and gun, zoom in, zoom out. You know, get the get the good stuff and then get out of there. You know, it's a really run like it takes the term run and gun to a whole nother level. Yeah, and um, that type of crew, you hear ENG style a lot, and, you know, it it took me a while, but you learn it's electronic news gathering. Yeah. And what that means is basically you've got a camera, an onboard light, audio direct to camera, and a tripod, and you can just run and gun and grab, grab things right as they go. And one of the biggest things about shooting in that world that is that translates over to outdoor filming I think is the readiness you need to have if you're filming a you know mule deer hunt in out west where you're spending a lot of a lot of time in the truck driving around ranches looking for herds of deer or whatever it may be being able to get out and go and not have to sit there and put together your kit is a big deal and you can learn a lot from those shows and about how people do it just seeing that because they get on a scene. If they've heard it on the radio, it's been going for a few minutes already. Mm-hmm. So they need to hop out and be ready to get it or they're going to miss it. Yeah, and if they miss it, they don't get paid. 
they just drove over there, wasted all that time when they could be getting another story. So yeah, it's a, I bet that is a dog eat dog world, man. It really is. And it, you know, it, you could do everything right, but the, your, your competitor could have been sitting, eating, you know, Taco Bell across the street when it happened and he got there first. Mm -hmm. And that in that world, it is, the competition's high. Yeah. And you got to look at these, you know, filming outdoor stuff. You got to look at it that way. Like, hey, man, there's somebody that could do this better than me. There's somebody that could take my job from me. And if I'm not out here hustling, if I'm not doing it, that that's what keeps me going most of the time is who's coming up behind me. And if they have the, you know, same fire in their, fire in their soul, I, I did when I first started it, you know, I could be in trouble. So what am I going to do next? And being ready and things like that i think learning from different worlds has helped me tremendously because shooting in this big production world you know i could be shooting corporate today and then wildfires tomorrow and then shooting a live broadcast to a social media platform the next day so being ready for all those events has really just helped me a lot i think putting yourself in those situations helps you a lot yeah well, kind of to touch on that, you know, since you film so many different things and places and events, you have to deal with a lot of different people. And sometimes, I'm, I'm especially if you're going to have to do with like shows and like sports shows and golf networks and live broadcasts, you have to deal with a lot of different people. You have to deal with a lot of egos and characters, you know, kind of gives what are some tips that you have with dealing with maybe someone that's not as pleasant to be around or to work with? Well... Um, living on the West Coast is a huge difference than living on the East Coast, just lifestyle-wise, things like that. And for me, I've learned to leave my personality, you know, I don't lock my personality up when I go on set and I'm just, yes, bore, you know, yes, no, boring, robotic guy. You, you keep that, you know, your personality, but you also have to keep all your opinions, all your beliefs, everything out the door. You can't walk into anything with, you know, you can't identify, I mean, it, not to sound ridiculous, but you can't be political. You can't be, you know, uh, social, religious, any of those beliefs you can't go into, especially with what I'm doing, dealing with now and the clients I'm dealing with. Because if I did, we'd have, you know, troubles on almost every shoot because I disagree with people. Nobody believes everything you do. And I think having that mindset of, okay, I'm going in here to work for this person. I'm not going in here to marry them. I'm not going in here to spend the rest of my life with them. I don't have to agree with them. They're, at the end of the day, they're, you know, a dollar, at the, uh, a dollar figure sometimes. And you just, you got to deal with that. But then you get the shoots where, you know, you agree and you're having a great time with those people. But going into it, you can't come in with any reservations, opinions, or feelings one way or the other because you're just going to upset yourself and your work quality is going to go down. You're going to have problems. You're going to have personal disagreements and you're going to have professional disagreements on the way things are shot. And instead of arguing with somebody over something, you do it their way, but you also do it the way you want to. And at the end of the day, if the way you want to looks better, they'll use it. They might not tell you and they might not thank you and say, hey, your idea was better. But 
you know, <laughs> in your heart. So I think the biggest thing is you got to step into it knowing, hey, I might not disagree with this person. I might be filming something I, I totally cannot get behind, but I've got to treat this person with the same respect I'd want to be treated with if they were in my shoes and give them the best products. So how do I achieve their goals? Let's make a mutual goal together and achieve it. And that's making the best product you can for whatever platform, you know, your shooting is airing on. Yeah. Check your, yeah, check your ego and your opinions at the door because you're, I mean, that's going to, I mean, that happens in the hunting world too. Probably not near as much as it does with you, but you just got to think about kind of the cost benefit analysis. Is it worth it? You know, is it worth this gig? Is it worth my job? Is it worth an argument? Is it worth whatever, you know, whatever the, you know, the outcome may be to, to not just be professional, do your job and do a good job. Right. You might be in a camp, you know, and your talent thinks he knows the best way to, you know, storyboard out a show or to shoot a show. And he's just headbang. You feel like banging your head against a wall. If you blow up at the guy, he's just going to shut down. Or if you argue with the guy, he's just going to shut down. You have your process and, you know, you got to find creative and polite ways to say, okay, I see what you're saying. Let's try it this way. I think this will accomplish what you want, but do it in a better and improved way. Yeah. And I think if you approach it with agreeing with them and not, you know, my biggest thing is a lot of shoots I have, there's people working, you know, underneath me in my department or answering to me in my department. And I hate when a guy comes to me, I can't get this figured out. I have a problem. This isn't working. This, we don't have this. Uh, this won't work. Don't come to me with the problem. Come to me with the solution. Come to me and say, hey, you know, this. I'm not getting good audio with this mic, but we can try this, this, or this. What do you want to do? That's the best. And if you approach it with, you know, someone you're shooting for or shooting with, like, hey, I know you want to do it this way. I don't think it'll work great doing it that way. Let's try it this way, this way, or this way. What do you think? You give them those options, and it feels like you're working together, and you're not working against them. Yeah. No, for sure. I uh, I can't stress that one enough. I'm, I mean, it's just not worth it at the end of the day. But anyway, um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, and something I want you to help me with next time we get to shoot together, if we get to shoot together, is lighting interviews. You know, kind of give me a... I know y'all probably go into some really big you know, intricate lighting, you know, tons of lights, all that good stuff. But kind of for, you know, the the listeners of this, what's a simple way to light an interview? Like maybe like kind of explain three-point lighting or, you know, key lights and backlights. You know, something that you can simply do to really step up your interview lighting game and, and, and ways to do that that might not cost you a fortune. Yeah, I think the biggest thing when it comes to lighting and lighting a successful interview or successfully lighting an interview, you have to be ready to work in any environment you go into and know, hey, no matter what this room looks like, no matter what these, you know, it looks like outside, I'm going to have to make this work. And, you know, basic three-point lighting, it's kind of like the rule of thirds. It's something 
you kind of learn as you're going into it, and it's only a place to start. There's no concrete rules. Yes, there are rules that, you know, you don't put all your lights on one side or things like that, but you learn those when you try it once and it doesn't look right. And three-point lighting, just as simple as it gets, you've got a key light, you've got a backlight, and you've got a fill light. And you got to think of when you get down into an interview, set if you don't have the person who's doing the interview, set yourself down and turn your viewfinder around, frame up the shot roughly to how you want it with the background you want, and then start from there. You know, if you have your your subject looking off into the space on one side of the screen, that's where your key light needs to be. A major, It's called the key because it's, you know, the main and, and it's the key light. It's the most important one. Um, you know, as basic as it gets, you want to put as that's a majority of your light. And then I like to take my backlight most of the time and almost mirror it. So it's shooting right back at the key and it kind of gives a good offset and a little bit of fill on the opposite side of their, you know, the person's face to help with that fill light. And if you don't have, you know, a fill light, it brings that up a little bit. If you just have, you know, two on camera lights, you can make this work. It's just as simple as making the situation that you have work the best for you. If there's a, you know, big, tin wall you're shooting up against on the siding of a barn or something like that that's light in color you can use that as a fill light because it's reflecting light you might not see it with your eyes but the camera's gonna see it um you know just like a reflector disc a simple 36 inch or 48 inch you know photographer's reflectors disc that rolls up and you can attach to your backpack with a carabiner that'll bounce enough light to help with those under hat shadows a lot of times, you know, because in outdoor filming, almost every time they're wearing a hat, and I'm sure that's one of the biggest struggles you face is seeing the shadow line across people's faces when you're outside. Yeah, and they it, don't want to and they don't want to pick their hat up because that just makes them feel funny. They don't want right. to like loosen it up and like give you a little bit of light under there, so it's yeah, it makes it awkward. No, it and it does make it awkward and I think the biggest thing is you know, making the situations work for you. If you find a place with even shade, try and get under there, but you don't want to shoot from even shade to a super bright sky background because you're going to be, you know, to expose your subject right, your background's going to be blown out. Even if your background looks bright, it's better to have things in it, trees, buildings, something that it's just not one solid, you know, blue sky behind them that helps out and that gives you know the some of the best days filming outside are overcast days just because you don't have shadows across people's faces and you don't face dynamic lighting situations um it's easy for me and it's easy for broadcast tv and you know things you see on social or things that are not outdoor world because a lot of times they have you know, a grip truck, a big, you know, 25 foot long box truck full of lights that can replicate the power of the sun almost yeah, no doubt. to light those subjects. What's that, what's that big, crazy big light, um, that they brought on that one shoot that we had? I can't remember what it was called, but it was a dumb, dumb bright. I can't remember what it was called. I don't know how the generator even pulled it. 
Wh- which shoot was this? This was one I was at Sub 7. We did a couple of big production commercials, and they brought some light, and it literally was the sun. That's what they called it. I can't remember what the name of that light was. Yeah. Um, you know, my ba- I guess this is a good time to kind of briefly touch on gear, and this is a lot of stuff. You know, it's not interesting to listen to, but, you know, I'll keep it short. With the gear and specifically lighting, you have three basic types of lighting in film and photography today and less in photography but in the video world you have you know leds which were making a strong strong uh taking a strong foothold in the marketplace and then you have tungsten which is um traditional style movie lights and they burn at a more indoor kelvin temperature and you know you're talking 3200 or 2900 kelvin you know gives that more indoor look and then you have what's known as hmi which is that's what you use outdoors most of the time it gives a good daylight burn and they are very 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 bright and for Um, for those listening that that might not know what the kelvin number is that's that white balance number on your camera when you're white balancing your camera and it gives you a like a, that number, like if it's usually outside, it's in that 5,500, 5,600 Kelvin range when you white balance your camera for outside natural light. So that's what he's talking about when he says Kelvin. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Um, no, you're good. Yeah, um, you know, and like he was saying, those HMI lights, those are those are big, big lights. They take a lot of power, but they're also incredibly bright. Um, a 400 watt HMI light is insanely bright and there's not many that go below that. There's a couple manufacturers who make 200s and even some of the most, just to give people an idea, even some of the most, uh, powerful LED lights, you know, you think of even the light bars on people's trucks now, they have those big 50 inch light bars that, that covers a long range and a lot of light, but one of those is probably equal to, you know, like a fifteen hundred or fifteen thousand watt HMI, and that's what big productions and movies use a lot. Sports shows use them a lot. Um, I've shot a lot of talk shows for the Golf Channel, and we're using a ton of HMI style lights just for the style of interview they like, and just, you know, just burning retinas. Yes, and it, <laughs> they. Talent, very, talent loves them. They love oh, bright they, lights. They love them. And the problem you do run into with HMI, and a lot of people are going away from them, um, in the lights itself, the housing has a special lens in it that takes out uh, harmful UV rays and other types of light rays. And I won't speak to the exact science because I, I don't know that, but um, they're harmful. And a couple years ago, there was a reporter for a major network who had permanent eye damage from only a few hours of working with one of these lights that had a crack in the lens that they didn't know about. Um, something that they didn't look at when the light was off and when the lights on, nobody stares right into it to Mm -hmm. see if the lens looks okay. And, you know, checking your gear, that's, that's a big thing before these shoots and you got to be careful with those HMI lights using them. But, you know, my biggest thing is with these interviews, you can't, it, it's hard to compare sometimes, sit there and say, oh yeah, you know, as a outdoor producer, outdoor video producer, compare what you're getting to what you see on 
you know, even someone's social media page, a lot of people are, some of these budgets on some of these social videos, you might see a one minute Instagram video and not realize, yeah, they, this looks great, but this company probably spent, you know, could have spent anywhere close to $50,000 on it. Mm -hmm. And it's expensive. So the biggest thing I can say is don't feel bad if you're not getting what you think you should be able to work with what you have, be able to creatively figure out, Hey, I've got a big white truck. If I put this person next to it and frame the truck out, that's going to give a lot of reflections of light to lighten their face up, even Mm -hmm. if they're in the shadows and it's going to bring your subject closer to the background you know, and brightness, and it's going to give you a better exposed image. Better exposed image. Learn how to use your learn how to use your lens to blow out your background. Learn how to, you know, you know, manipulate your iris and your, um, you know, all the different exposure settings to get that image to where it stands out. And then something that everybody can buy is a good bounce. You know, they can bounce light and get that. You know, be able to use natural light. Um, that's that's invaluable. I think. Yeah, and, you know, you can find bounces on Amazon for, heck, less than $50 probably these days. And another good thing about them is if you don't have, you know, any shade and you need shade, you can, with a few simple little tools that you, clamps and things like that, you can make even shade through a tree over somebody's head and not have, you know, the dappling effect or spotted shade on their face from leaves and things like that and it's i think it's one of the most invaluable tools you can have in your kit yeah um you know and then when it comes time to take pictures even if you're not a professional photographer your talent or your you know the person you're taking pictures of is gonna thank you because their pictures are gonna look you know that next step better than what they're used to if they're not used to having that out there yeah no doubt um and I think it's it's simple. It, it's something easy to pack and invaluable to have. Yeah. How are some how are some ways that you you know after you do a big shoot like maybe you came back from the wildfires and you've been out in the elements? What are some things you do to kind of care for your stuff? Um, the biggest thing in caring for your gear is regimen a schedule. You can't sit there and say I'm going to clean my gear. You know. After every big shoot, I'm going to come home, break every... Because, I mean, like we were talking about at the beginning, you get into a mind... You get into that slow period or you get into things that are tedious and your brain just shuts down. And especially, you know, if you've been hustling for a month and you get home and you have a few days down, the last thing you want to do is think about your gear. So if you don't do it every time, I think if you say, okay, I'm going to do it, Every time the season changes, get your gear out, take everything down, just like, you know, people go into the gun range. You you take your gun apart and you clean it. Take all your gear apart, clean it good. Get you, Go to, you know, Walmart, your local pharmacy, get a bottle of rubbing alcohol, some Q-tips, um, paper, paper towels, some non, non-stick cloths like you use to wipe windows down with or screen cleaning cloths for your lenses and just have a basic kit for $15 or less that you can clean your gear with is something that's again invaluable you know I'll use that word again but for me after the wildfire you got to think like oh you stand next to a campfire all night you go to bed and the next day your jacket 
you know, smells like smoke. Well, imagine being in an area where you can't escape the smoke smell for a week at a time. You are just marinating your clothes, your gear, your vehicle, everything in it. And taking it all apart, rubbing it down, blowing, you know, just taking a little quick blast of air from an air compressor if you have it available or a, you know, even those keyboard cleaning cans of air to blow dust out, that's going to help. And get all those little particles out. I, After the wildfires, I took my camera completely out. I, sh- I was shooting for that on a uh, older broadcast style camera. This is a Panasonic HDX 900. And these are your classic news cameras, you know, look crazy big and look very outdated, but still very much in use in news world. And it's a matter of blowing out the fan and giving it a good wipe down. And that alcohol on just a paper towel pulls a lot of that dirt, dust, and grime. You know, I'm taping things to my camera a lot of times with gaff tape, and there's residue left over getting getting that off. You know, that attracts a lot of dust and dirt. And I think rubbing alcohol is a great tool to have. It cleans things. And then a basic eyeglass cleaner, a lens cleaning solution is simple to have and something you should never leave anywhere without. If you have a camera, you should have a lens cleaner. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times, you know, I'm watching a live broadcast of a weather event or something and they have a dirty lens and it's like, man, come on. It's 10 seconds to spray and wipe down. Yeah. Another reason I hate duck hunting because you always get water on your lens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're getting water on your lens and a lot of times you're filming into the sky, which... Oh God! The problem. Just, just, I'm just gonna get anxiety thinking about it. I just, I, I can't. I detest it so much. Well, Jacob, but, dude, I, uh, yo, you got something else? Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just gonna say, but just like training your body, you gotta train your gear. And when it comes to training your gear, having it clean and prepped and ready to go at all times, I think is the biggest thing you can do. And if you're going on an elk hunt, you know. You, if you grow up in the flatlands, you need a hike. If you're filming a hunt, I think, or you're filming anytime, you need to know, like, hey, my gear's clean, everything works on it. I need to, I'm good to go. And I think that that confidence makes waking up, you know, at 3 a.m. to get the cameras ready much easier because you know, hey, I don't have to make sure it works or I don't have to give myself extra time if something doesn't. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I know it works. Well, Jacob, where can everybody find you on social media? Yeah, um, I am mainly on Instagram. Um, I My handle is uh, Savage Raptor, and it's uh, back in the day when I had a uh, Ford Raptor, but I abbreviated it. So my Instagram ha- handle is Savage, S-A-V-A-G-E-R-P-T-R, Savage Raptor. Nice. Yep, well, yep. dude, I... Uh, I thoroughly appreciate it and um hopefully we will get together and get to be in hunting camp again soon because that one time in the last whatever 10 years it's been is not enough yeah it has been very few and far between we need to get back in camp some more and uh hang out some more but you enjoy it you have a good holiday season with your family tell everybody i said hello all right buddy i appreciate it talk to you soon and also if any of any of your listeners have you know 
any more in-depth questions on any of the wildfires, just want to chat. Feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to talk and talk about things like yeah. that. Sweet. Well, thank you, dude. I appreciate it. All right, man. You have a good one. You too.